0: Um, so I, what I think is most likely is that the lockout stays in place. And we get to December or January, and there's a point where the NBA owners say, you either take this deal or something close to this deal, or the entire season's going to be canceled.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer. The award-winning legal podcast with Jake Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys. Bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi from
3: Massachusetts. I'm Craig Williams from a Marine layer-laden Southern California. It's pretty cloudy out. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Firm Manager from LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash ltn.
2: Uh, well, for once, you and I have the same weather, I think, today, Craig. Uh, well, on, on today's program, we're going to talk about the NBA lockout. Of course, coming uh, just on the heels of the NFL lockout, the National Basketball Association officially locked out its players on July 1st when its collective bargaining agreement expired, and players and owners failed to reach a new contract.
3: And the NBA has filed two claims against the National Basketball Players Association before union players could file an antitrust lawsuit against them. First, the NBA has filed an unfair labor practice complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. And second, a lawsuit in the federal district court in New York, which claims that the NBA's lockout does not violate federal antitrust laws. The National Basketball Players Association will file a motion to have the NBA's federal lawsuit dismissed.
2: Well, we're going to talk more about these and uh, other issues involved in this lockout today. To help us do that today are two guests. First off, let me introduce uh, Professor Daniel E. Lazaroff, the Leonard Cohen Chair in Law and Economics and Director of the Loyola Sports Law Institute. Dan has written extensively in the area of antitrust and sports law. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Dan Lazaroff. Uh,
4: Thanks for having me.
3: And, Bob, our next guest is Professor Gabriel Feldman from Tulane University School of Law, and he's the director of the Tulane Sports Law Program. Gabe teaches contracts, antitrust, and sports law. Professor Feldman has represented a wide variety of sports entities while in the private practice of law and still serves as a consultant for a number of clients in the sports industry. Recently, Professor Feldman wrote an article for The Huffington Post titled, The Legal Issues Behind the Looming NBA Lockout. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Gabe Feldman
0: thank you for having me uh
3: well let's uh get started uh
2: if we can by perhaps getting a kind of a, an overview of, of what's going on here and and, and Gabe, since you you did just write about this uh at the huffington post uh, uh what's going on here what brought us to uh this lockout on july 1st
0: well this is something that has been in the works for i would say at least 2 to 3 years and the nba owners see the current financial system or at least the system that was in place in the now-expired collective bargaining agreement, as unworkable. They think the financial system is broken and that the players are getting too great a share of revenue. And according to the NBA, as many as 22 NBA owners are were losing money under the old system. And so they believe they need to do something to change the economics of the system. That something was to try to negotiate a better deal, at the collective bargaining table. They were unable to do that, and so they have locked the players out in the hopes of putting some pressure on them to get a better deal at the bargaining table. And while the players were locked out, the NBA filed litigation and an unfair labor practice charge, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute. But that's what got us here, a system that the owners claim is broken and that the players are perfectly happy with.
2: You know I guess we're going to talk more about some of the specific issues that are on the table uh but uh, let me just bring uh, Dan Lazaroff into this as well and and dan uh from from where you to, where where you sit uh what are some of the the key legal issues uh, that that you see
4: well, I think before the legal issues, we have to understand that this is primarily about money and the the key legal issues uh i, I think are whether or not if the uh, union were to decertify, uh, they could proceed with an antitrust claim. Uh, The League is trying to preempt that by, as Gabe mentioned, filing a declaratory judgment uh, suit, claiming, among other things, that there would be no antitrust violation. Uh, So um, before... Getting to any uh, legal dispute, though, I think it's important to understand that this is about money. And uh, Gabe put his finger, I think, on the key issue using the phrase claim, the The NBA owners claim that 22 teams are losing money. And uh, unlike the NFL lockout, where everybody agreed that it was just a matter of who's going to get the last piece of pizza, how to split up the pie, uh, in this situation there's a, a fundamental uh, threshold question of whether or not these claims of losses are exaggerated, or whether they are accurate. And I think uh, that's, that's more of an accounting question than, than a legal question.
2: Well, uh, help, help us walk us through what, what, some, of these, what some of the issues on, on the table are. I mean, as you say, it's about money. I mean, there, there's a, one of the big points of contention has been this kind of salary cap issue. Explain to that. Explain well, that to us.
4: The NFL has what's called a hard cap, uh, where teams cannot uh, exceed the cap. The NBA has had, uh, under the prior collective bargaining agreement, what's called a soft cap because it's riddled with exceptions. Uh, the qualifying free agent exception, the early qualifying free agent exception, the veteran free agent exception, the mid-cap exception, the details of which would take much longer uh, than we have to, to discuss, but I think the owners would like uh, a cap similar to the NFL cap, which fixes an amount uh, uh, for the total salaries. The players would not like that uh, and would, I don't think will go along with that unless the cap is set very high, much higher than what the owners want. The owners want to cut back the percentage of total basketball-related uh, income uh, allocated to the players. So that's an issue. Uh, length of contracts, guarantee of contracts, those are other issues uh, the owners want addressed because they do not want to be exposed for a large amounts of money over an extended period of time if they can reduce that time. So those are two key issues.
3: With this kind of an economy going on, what kind of sympathy are the owners or the players going to get for this type of a situation from their fans? I mean, most of those fans are out of work.
4: I would say little. Uh, There was a wonderful letter to the L.A. Times last week where a fan wrote in and said, quoted John L. Lewis, the great labor leader, when he was asked about a dispute between uh, the airline pilots union and an airline and said, uh, I'm not really interested in disputes among plutocrats. So uh, I don't know whether the fans will be terribly sympathetic to a dispute between billionaires and millionaires. I don't yeah, know.
0: And I'm not sure that – I think you're right. And I think it's hard to feel sympathy for a lot of the, the owners, some of the owners, I think, are not in, in as great a financial situation as someone would let like to believe because of the investment they've made in their team. Uh, but from the player perspective, I think one of the big differences between the NFL and the NBA is that the player salaries are much higher in the NBA. You look at average salaries somewhere in the 4 to $5 million range.
4: It's a little over 5
0: And And it's it's tough to claim that um, there'll be sympathy, not only if their salaries are
4: reduced,
0: but if they miss some paychecks because of an extended lockout. But I don't think at the end of the day that fan sympathy is really going to have much to do with how this dispute gets resolved.
4: I, I, I agree with you.
0: This dispute gets resolved at the bargaining table and potentially in the courtroom or maybe with the NLRB. So I think fan sympathy, they may be angry at both sides. It may turn some fans away, but that's not going to give cause either side to move.
2: Well, it's interesting. I mean, setting aside fan sympathy, I mean, it seems that the players' union has has at least been slightly reasonable here. I mean, we talk about the salary cap, and there there is this this cap on, I guess, uh, the percentage of revenues. Is that how it works? That can be allocated to player yeah, salaries. Yes, so I think and, it was
4: fifty seven percent. Gabe, right. can correct me if I'm yeah, wrong. Under correct. the old agreement, and the owners now would like to reduce it somewhere into the forties
2: and yet the players have, have have at least been willing to uh, yield uh, a little bit on that and, yes. and and the 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 I mean who you know does it appear to you that one side or the other is being more or less reasonable so far in this dispute
4: well i would go back to what i said earlier i'd like to hear more about uh, given the the, the depreciation Uh, allowances that are taken and are reflected in the tax returns that have been disclosed in the audited financial statements, what really the uh, bottom line is in terms of cash flow, uh, actual dollars spent and actual dollars coming in. And and that will help us determine, uh, I think, uh, the reasonableness of the the, uh, alternative demands. Yeah, and and I uh,
0: I think that's right. And, And I think at least superficially, and Dan's right, we don't know the truth behind the numbers yet But the NFL, as Dan mentioned earlier, none of the owners were claiming that they were losing money. Their argument was really, we just don't want to pay the players anymore, not that we can't pay the players anymore. The NBA owners are making a different argument, and whether that argument is true or not still remains to be seen. But again, I don't know that uh, there's a right or wrong here. I think this is, as Dan said, this is about money. This is a business deal, and both sides are trying to get as much money as they can. And at this point, they believe, I think both sides believe, that they're better off fighting, whether it's in the courts or at the bargaining table, and potentially missing some games than operating under the deal that they'd be able to get right now. Uh, I think the owners certainly feel that way. And what I think is likely to cause this to be a extended work stoppage that will go into the regular season unless the court steps in is that at least some of the owners, and whether it's 22 or or 10 or seven, whatever it might be, some of the owners believe they will lose less money by not playing games than by playing under the current system.
3: What role does decertification have in this process? I mean, there have been a lot of threats of the National Basketball Players Association being decertified. How does that play into it?
4: Well, it raises some interesting legal questions. Uh, first of all, Derek Fisher has said that that's not in their immediate plans. The union is not immediately planning to decertify. Uh, the union has to be wary of what happened in the Eighth Circuit and the NFL litigation before they... Uh, concluded a new CBA. Um, I personally don't agree with the decision of the Eighth Circuit uh, regarding its interpretation of the Norris-LaGuardia Act, uh, and and they managed to avoid making a, a direct decision on the effect of decertification. Uh, the League, in its pleadings uh, in the in the federal action filed in the Southern District of New York, Uh, cites the Brown decision from the 1995 or 1996 Supreme Court uh, decision and says uh, this is not a situation where uh, the collective bargaining process is at an end uh, and therefore decertification should have no impact on the antitrust exemption. Uh, Interestingly, that very same paragraph of the Brown decision mentioned that decertification might well be a basis for terminating the antitrust exemption. So uh, it's a tactic that the plaintiff's counsel, or actually defendant's counsel in this case, uh, the union uh, lawyer, uh, has used before. Uh, and it will be very interesting to see if this does go forward in the courts, whether the uh, Southern District uh, of New York judge to whom the case has been assigned uh, will take that position.
0: Yeah, uh, I think I think Dan raises a really good point about Derek Fisher having said publicly that the players had no immediate plans to dissolve their union. And that was strategic. I mean, that was strategic on a couple levels. One, I think by delaying, they thought it gave them a better case under Brown by putting some distance between the end of the CBA and the dissolution of their union. And two, I think they really wanted to avoid a preemptive strike by the NBA. They didn't want to be out there in public saying, we're about to decertify, we're threatening to decertify, because then the NBA was going to be able to go to the court of their choice and file a declaratory judgment, which is exactly what they did. I think the players were a little surprised that the NBA filed that action. And the NBA players' first response, I'm sure, is going to be, this is not ripe. There's nothing imminent here. We have never said we're planning to dissolve our union.
4: You, you make a very interesting legal point, Gabe. The Declaratory Judgment Act... Does not permit advisory opinions. There has to be a real case or controversy, as Article Three of the U.S. Constitution requires. But I do think that the past threats of decertification, uh, even though I think they will make the argument you, 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 you say, uh, probably will, will make this ripe for determination. Although I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, it, it, it
0: very well might. But I do think that's why the players were keeping quiet. I agree. I think they were intentionally.
4: Avoiding that discussion I, I think you're right
2: where, where does Where does decertification get the players what's, what's the advantage to them from a strategic point of view?
4: The advantage to whom the players Yeah, of decertifying? Yeah. If, in fact the court were to view this as the end of the antitrust exemption, they could then proceed uh, to an antitrust suit on the merits, and there are cases out there, older cases, where the players were successful in the NFL. Uh, in a series of cases of winning antitrust suits based on the kinds of uh, things that would otherwise be in a CBA, a a salary cap, a draft, a a, uh, uh, restriction on free agency. These are things which uh, some of the older cases from the 70s and 80s did hold to be an antitrust violation. Frankly, I'm not certain that they would absolutely prevail on the merits because of the competitive balance argument, but they would be able to proceed Uh, and use that as leverage uh, if, in fact, decertification were viewed as a a termination of the uh, non-statutory labor exemption.
0: Right. And the idea is that this labor exemption, the non-statutory labor exemption, uh, in essence, requires employees to choose either labor law or antitrust law. And if you choose labor law, you get a right to a union and you get to collectively bargain with your employer. But that collective bargaining process, not only the terms of an agreement, but the process itself, are immune from antitrust attacks.
4: Now, I think the Eighth Circuit Mm -hmm. opinion in the Brady case, the NFL case, muddied the distinction. Right,
0: right. Uh, Although Not in in the context of the statutory labor exemption, in the context of Norris LaGuardia, although you could say whether an injunction was available. Right.
4: The interesting thing, though, is that under federal antitrust law, if an antitrust suit can go forward, one of the things in the Clayton Act is Section 16, which specifically provides for injunctive relief if an antitrust violation is proved. So, you know, it raises some interesting legal questions.
0: Right and the first the first thing that the players would challenge which is exactly what the NFL players challenged was the lockout itself. They would claim that the lockout is an is a per se illegal group boycott under yeah. antitrust law and should be enjoined and they got that relief from the district court in Minnesota. Yeah.
4: Not based on a per se theory. I think that uh given the current state of antitrust boycott law uh it's more of a rule of reason argument in my view.
0: Right, but I, I, you might be right, but either way the judge said they had a likelihood of success in the merits, whether under, uh, or under rule yes. of
4: reason. Yes, the 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 judge said they had a, they had some likelihood of success. The judge focused, I thought, the district court judge focused more heavily on uh the idea of irreparable injury and the inadequacy of monetary damages as a basis for issuing a preliminary injunction. But right, but you need both. You need and- both. You do uh, I'm just suggesting that maybe the likelihood of success on the merits wasn't as emphasized as much as maybe you're suggesting. In well, reading Well, maybe, the
0: but I don't think there's any question that a lockout, uh, well, it wouldn't be a lockout, that a decision by 30 employers to refuse to sign and pay their players um, would, would be able to satisfy the rule of reason. I, uh, I, I tend argument. to
4: agree with that, uh, except if you read the district court complaint, the the NBA is actually alleging in its complaint it is I saw yeah that, that yep. the lockout is pro competitive right well just because they allege it doesn't mean it's true but, <laughs> but you're right I mean, well
2: if this lockout continues for some period of time what are what are the owners' options I mean one of the things you talked about in your in your Huffington Post column Gabe is is the idea that uh, in fact they they could hire replacement workers so to speak uh, under the law is is that kind of a thing uh, feasible likely or no. is, is the season just going to be dead and what's going to happen while this while this lockout persists
4: i don't i don't think there's any any real chance that they'd hire a replacement player i agree with him when the nfl tried that back during the work stoppage years few years ago uh i think it was a uh uh from a quality of play standpoint a disaster and i think uh, if people want to watch second rate uh, uh pro basketball some of them can turn to college basketball no offense to the A. it was a disaster
0: but it did, it did help break the nfl union it did. it did have some success from a a, a strategic yeah. and leverage standpoint.
3: So based on what you're seeing so far, are you really expecting to be able to have this uh a season next year or are we going to be looking at no season at all?
0: I, I think part of it will depend on what happens in court. If the players are able if the players eventually choose to dissolve their union and follow the NFLPA steps, uh They may be able to get an injunction from the lockout. I I don't know that that's likely, and they happen to be in a circuit that has ruled in favor of the owners in virtually every case that's come up like this between the NBA players and the owners. Um, So what I think is most likely is that the lockout stays in place. And we get to December or January, and there's a point where the NBA owners say, you either Take this deal, or something close to this deal, or the entire season is going to be canceled. I don't know what happens at that point, but I don't. I I think it's more likely than not that we miss the first couple of months of the NBA season.
4: I agree that I think some of the season could be missed. Um, I, I looked at the background of the judge to whom this case has been assigned, the the federal uh, declaratory judgment action. He is a uh, almost three years to the day been on the bench in the Southern District. He's a George W. Bush appointee uh his background suggests to me that uh uh if I were the players I would maybe prefer a different judge maybe I'm I'm being too harsh or too critical or too judgmental here uh but uh I really believe that this is going to ultimately be settled at the bargaining table when I don't know Uh, If cooler heads prevail, they might even get it done before the regular season starts or shortly thereafter with a few games canceled. But Gabe could be right. If this thing drags on towards the end of the calendar year, you might be looking at a repeat of what happened in the National Hockey League. It's hard to know.
0: Yeah, we also could be looking at a repeat of what happened in the 90s for the NBA where they ended up canceling, uh, I believe it was 32 games.
3: Well, gentlemen, it's time for us to interrupt you and take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have more on the NBA lockout and the fate of the 2011-2012 season.
5: Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing is?
6: In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them. The ability to get their work done from anywhere, whether it's at their office, at the courthouse, at home, or even if they're on vacation, they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done. Uh, The mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important with with cloud-based software. You can access your data and software from your iPhone or your iPad, uh, your BlackBerry, uh, and other mobile devices. So for the uh, lawyers that are on the move, which is an increasing uh, proportion of lawyers, that's a, a really key benefit as well.
5: We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack.
6: Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O ocom
1: Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC.
2: Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS-70 Type 2 Attested Data Centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit ltn.
1: Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not?
5: I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcast to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center.
6: Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them?
5: It's easy. Just go to legaltalknetwork dot and pick a program for CLE. Click on it and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com dot com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE.
1: Perfect. I'll do that right now. Need to reach lawyers on the go? Try marketing with new media here on Legal Talk Network. We can start the conversation for you. Go to legaltalknetwork dot and shoot us an email or call us at seven eight one.
2: 551-9960. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're talking about the NBA lockout. This is Bob Ambroji, uh, and uh, my co-host, J. Craig Williams, is also here. And we're talking with Professor Daniel Lazaroff, the Leonard Cohen Chair in Law and Economics and Director of the Loyola Sports Law Institute. And also with Professor Gabe Feldman from the Tulane University School of Law and where he's director of the uh, Tulane Sports Law Program. I guess one of the questions I, I really don't understand, I mean, the finances here perplex me a little bit. They, the The owners are claiming that they're losing money, uh, and yet it's hard for me to understand how salaries can be the cause of them losing that money if there is this uh, this this revenue share cap. I guess I'm not exactly sure what you call it, but uh, if, if salaries are are capped at a percentage of of revenue, uh, there is at least de facto a, a cap in place now. So, what what's what's happening? Why why are the owners uh, losing money? Is it is, are they fairly tying it to salaries, or is there something else altogether going on here? Well, Dave,
4: it's, it's a couple of things. One is salaries, but uh, as I mentioned in the first segment. Uh, and sports economists have written about this, including uh, one at the University of Michigan, uh, the fact that that depreciation is, is permitted, uh, I think now, based on a statute passed in 2004, a new owner can depreciate the total cost of the franchise over 15 years. That creates paper losses, which are perfectly legal for tax purposes, uh, but don't actually involve the expenditure of money. So it may, for tax purposes, show a loss and and nobody i'm not criticizing the tax accountants or tax lawyers for doing that but it doesn't necessarily mean they have negative cash flow
0: yeah i also think this is a there's a big market small market issue here where the looking at that that bri number that total revenue mm-hmm. that reflects a lot of what the big markets are bringing to the table yeah, Angeles, that makes Chicago, a good point. York, Boston, that's not necessarily benefiting to the same extent the smaller markets in New Orleans, San Antonio. and
4: uh, uh, Gabe's absolutely right, and I think the the revenue sharing, not between players and owners, but between among owners themselves, uh, is an issue that's being talked about. The players would like it in the new collective bargaining agreement. Commissioner Stern would like to handle it outside the context of collective bargaining. But even the commissioner has said he'd like to see revenue sharing uh uh, possibly tripled from 40 to 50 million to maybe 150 million. So I think Gabe's right to mention that.
0: And I think I think he'd like to see it increase, but I think the owners are firm in their stance that they will make that decision and the players won't be involved. And they don't see it as a matter for collective bargaining.
3: Is this, is this a systemic problem that we're seeing in sports? I mean, you know, we've talked about the National Hockey League. Right now, we're we just almost wrapped up the uh, NFL lockout situation, if not wrapped it up. Now we're facing the NBA. Uh, what's going on here from the big picture perspective? We have greedy owners, greedy players, not enough money to split. What's what's happening?
4: I don't know if I'd use the word greed. I think, as both Gabe and I said earlier, these, these are business decisions. And uh, people are trying to do the best they can for their clients in these negotiations. And it's not different from... Uh, other labor disputes in that respect, although obviously the labor force here is much more affluent, so I, I think it's a matter of uh, negotiating a deal. And uh, I don't know that greed is is the predominant thing. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's
0: also it's also not a new phenomenon. We've been seeing these labor disputes play out uh, ever since there have been players' unions, and it's typically been the players who were fighting for the significant change whether it was the creation of free agency uh, or or something along those lines and the players had to strike to get what they wanted we're now seeing that the tide has turned a little bit and the, some of the owners believe that the players have too good of a deal and they've it, got to do something
4: significant to get you're them right. back you're right it parallels what's going on in industrial yeah. unions where there've been employee givebacks in in more recent years after fighting for years to get better health benefits and better pay scales so it's a, a microcosm, I think, of what's gone on in the in the, in the uh, uh, labor movement in the United States.
0: Right, and I also think the dollar amount has made it more significant. I mean, with the NFL, we were talking about a nine billion dollar industry that could be a twenty billion dollar industry in ten years, and you could see why it would be worth fighting for four or five months when you're talking about splitting up twenty billion dollars. Uh, and again, I don't know that it's greed. I just think it's a smart business decision. Yeah, I agree to try to fight for that money
3: what's going to happen with the players i mean there are there are players right now that are committing to play in england there's a couple that are going to play in canadian leagues uh Spain, other asian leagues
4: turkey yeah uh the nba is going to allow these players to go uh most of these contracts are going to include a provision that allows them to leave without breaching their contracts to the foreign teams if the nba uh deal is settled uh and um I think that gives at least some of the players some leverage here, but I don't know if there are going to be enough jobs that people want to to make the entire union feel comfortable with a cancellation of a season.
0: Yeah, and my my perspective on players playing abroad is that it it does two things. One is it has the potential to fracture the union because you've got some guys at the top who are able to get big deals playing abroad, but not many of them. Darren Williams at we've heard rumors about Kobe Bryant, about Kevin Durant, Uh, and then some guys who are either from foreign countries to begin with that are going back or then a couple of just journeymen. But I I don't think that helps unify your labor force if some guys are doing fine during the lockout and others are hurting. I, I think that might be a divisive force. And it also, I think, in a way, eliminates some of the sense of urgency for what could be the leaders of the union or maybe what should be the leaders of the union. Remember, in the NFL, when the players were locked out, what were the top players doing? Brady, Breeze, Manning. They were putting their name on a class action antitrust lawsuit. What are the top players in the NBA doing in the lockout? They're trying to get paid in Turkey. Uh, I don't know that that helps the union. I don't know that helps move this along. So I, I don't know that that's going to be something that gives the players leverage. I think it may actually hurt them.
4: Well, it's a good counterpoint. Uh, you know, Time will tell.
2: Well, unfortunately, we're uh, at just about the end of our program. And before we conclude today's show. We'd like to give each of you an opportunity to sum up your thoughts on this topic, and uh, we also invite you to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you or get more information about about what you're up to. Dan Lazaroff, let's start with you.
4: Well, I can be reached at daniel.lazaroff at lls.edu at Loyola Law School. Uh, I'd be happy to respond to any inquiries. Uh, To sum this up for me, uh, I would say just two things. One, I do see this as different from the NFL lockout because of the assertions by some owners that they're losing money, Uh, and I think that makes settlement more difficult. And two, uh, I think this will ultimately be resolved through the collective bargaining process uh, and not in the courts. I I, I really feel that uh, that's the most efficient way to do it, I think both sides realize that. And while it may take a while, uh, based on past experience in uh, sports industries, If I had to predict anything, it would be at some point they will work this out uh, at the table.
2: Thanks a lot. And uh, Gabe Feldman, your final thoughts.
0: Well, I can be reached at gfeldman at Tulane.edu. And for those of you on Twitter, you can follow me at SportsLawGuy. My my take on this big picture, I, I agree with most of what Dan said. And I really don't think this is about trying to actually achieve a new deal through litigation. I don't think either side wants to litigate this all the way through to the end. That has happened in the past. That happened with the NFL back in 1989, and they had a four-year antitrust lawsuit. I don't think they want to get there here. I just think they want to see if they can get some leverage through the courts that will allow them to come back to the bargaining table and say, you've got to give in here. And the owners filed the first shot. And if they can prevent the players or get a declaration that the players – either cannot decertify or if they do decertify they can't bring an antitrust suit or if they can decertify then their contracts are null and void. I mean that that just gives the owners more leverage at the bargaining table. Doesn't guarantee we get a deal, but I think at least lets each side know what the landscape will be when they get back to
1: negotiating.
3: Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for participating in our show today. We tremendously appreciate it, along with your insights and information. For our listeners, remember now you can get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center. For listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts, go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And Bob, we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. Yep, and let me uh,
2: add my... Thanks to our guests for being with us and, and Gabe, I've just followed you on Twitter. Well,
5: thank <laughs> and, you very much. Uh, just as
2: degree. we speak here. Very good. And uh, thanks for being with us. Very very interesting program. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week, right? See you then.
1: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Tuck Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and hey, check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.